It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder and violence. Please note that we now know that a lot of our Idaho pronunciations are wrong and we will correct them in future episodes. We recorded some of these interviews before we knew about our mistakes. We do apologize, and we appreciate the terrific listeners who flagged our mistakes with us. It's Moscow, not Moscow. Now that there's been an arrest in the University of Idaho murders, we are very curious about how the case against Brian Koberger will likely fare going forward. We know that so many people out there want to see justice for Kayla Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Xander Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. Earlier this week, we ran an interview with one defense attorney about the University of Idaho murders. Well, for today's episode, we spoke to yet another defense attorney. He's from the Western United States. 
we previously spoke with him about the Delphi case. We're keeping him anonymous for professional reasons, but we verified his identity and his professional accomplishments. We're thrilled that he was willing to talk to us again about the Idaho case. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is the University of Idaho Murders. Another defense perspective on the probable cause affidavit. First, the attorney broke down the facts included in the probable cause affidavit. Then, he got into his interpretation of the case against Brian Kohlberger. So, what were your overall impressions of the PCA? Well, some things uh, really stood out to me. Um, First of all, and probably foremost, was the encounter that Mr. Kohlberger or whoever committed these crimes had with one of their roommates whose initials are listed as DM in the probable cause affidavit. Uh, according to the, the PCA, roommate DM encountered Mr. Koberger in the hallway, and they sort of walked past each other with DM frozen in fear and uh, Mr. Koberger uh, leaving and then apparently getting in his car and speeding off. Uh, that, that, of course, has never been released before, and it was really interesting to me that one, uh, Mr. Koberger did not harm this person if, in fact, he killed the other four people. And two, that this person, the DM, you know, you would think they would call the police right away. But from what, what I understand, the police weren't called until about noon uh, that morning or, or, you know, about eight hours after that encounter. So that's one thing that stood out to me. Also, you know, the, the press had led on that this case was solved by genetic genealogy, and it sort of was, but not uh, by uploading through a database such as 23andMe. Um, It was really solved by video and cell phone surveillance. And I know when you and I had talked before, and we had had been talking about this case, I had told you that I thought this case would be solved with 
cell phone data and, and cell phone tracking, and, and that was true in part. And what happened was they did what was called a video canvas of the area right after they determined that there was a murder that occurred in the King Road area in Moscow, Idaho. They basically got all the videos that they could from the area, and they saw this white Hyundai Elantra that did not have a front license plate. I'll talk about that in a minute. And so that was really their first tip. From there, they took that a tip, and they, it looks like they could tell he was heading towards Pullman, Washington, where University of Washington was, and that was where they last tracked him. And so what I understand the next phase of the investigation to be was they went to University of Washington and asked them to check their video surveillance around the time uh, that this murder would have occurred for the white Hyundai and were able to then further locate uh, the Hyundai and eventually track it uh, to Mr. Koberger. They then got Mr. Koberger's cell phone data and were able to not place him at the scene of the homicide on the t at the time of the homicide, but place him going towards the homicide before it occurred and leaving the homicide after it occurred. And interestingly enough, Mr. Koberger felt apparently that if he put his phone in airplane mode or turned it off during the two or three hours that he committed uh, this homicide, that he would be good. Uh, this is someone who has studied criminology, of course, and I believe this is someone who thought that they were probably a lot smarter than they were when it came to being able to uh, commit a crime. The cell phone surveillance was key in this case. So we have that, him, his phone movement near in time to the homicides, both coming and going. And then another thing that uh, was really interesting to me and, and, and frightening, as a matter of fact, was that Mr. Koberger apparently on at least 12 occasions had his cell phone pinging off of, you know, the towers that would be closest to the 1122 King Road address. I think the police work in, in this case was absolutely outstanding to be able to put this together so fast. So what they did was uh, they couldn't put him at, at the crime scene at the time of the, the crime because he turned his phone off. And the, the first search warrant they got for his cell phone was for, a, I think, a two-day period right around the time of the murders. Then they went, got, and went back and got another uh, cell phone search warrant to basically get his tracking data from the time he purchased the phone, which was June 22, 2022, up until the time the warrant was applied for. And when they got that data, they realized uh, two things really stood out to me. One was that he had gone to that residence 12 times obviously in planning, uh, I assume, uh, the murder. And two, he went back to the crime scene on the morning of the crime after it was committed and after he apparently went back home. I think around 9 o'clock that morning, he went back to the King Road residence. Yeah, I'm looking at the affidavit here. It says he was there between 9.12 and 9.21, back at the, the, the homicide location which, again, is, is a very um, interesting fact. There could be a couple of reasons why he would have done this, right, just kind of thinking my way through this. One is that he had left a knife sheath, which uh, ended up being key in his arrest, 
which not only had some pretty identifying information on it to include the Marine Corps insignia, uh, but also, in fact, had his DNA on it, on the snap switch that would, you know, close the sheath and keep the knife secure inside of the, of the sheath. And so that was the DNA that they ended up getting. But I don't know if they uploaded it through a gene- genealogy site, but what they did was, you know, they, it was already way on their radar screen at this point in time. Uh, and on December 27th, I believe it was, and they had tracked him across the country to his folks' house in, in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. They went in and they did what we call a trash pull, and they got uh, trash out of the Coburger residence, got his father's DNA, I believe, and then were able to conclusively say that the perpetrator or, or that the person who left the DNA on the knife sheath was a child of the person whose DNA came out of the trash. You know, I, I just I can't say enough how, what a fantastic uh, piece of police work this is, how quickly this was solved using the type of evidence that was available to them, which wasn't really a lot. Really good piece of police work. Uh, but other things that, that stood out, just, you know, when, when we think about people who talk about the government microchipping you or, you know, not wanting to get vaccinated because Bill Gates is trying to put a chip on you. The more and more we look at cases like this, they don't need to microchip us because everyone has a cell phone in their pocket. Everyone has a license plate on their car. And they were tracking this guy across the country by cell phone and license plate readers all the way to to his folks' house. So the, the government's ability to track people these days is incredible. With a combination of cell phone data, cell phone pings, license plate readers, and then, you know, particularly in this case, DNA and genetic genealogy. The government really has the ability, if they're doing their job right, to run people like this down. You've really brought up a lot of interesting points. Uh, one thing I imagine we'll get some questions on from our listeners is that do police need a warrant to like take someone's trash to test that for DNA? And that's an excellent question. What I would say is that is probably a state by state question. I am not familiar with what Pennsylvania's law is on that. I can say that in my state, you could run into some trouble pulling trash. Uh, based on some recent developments in case law. What my thoughts are, though, is that they have probable cause without the the trash pull. And even if that were to be excised from the warrant, I think they still have probable cause to make the arrest and to seize his DNA. So I I think if that search is bad, I think they can still uh, hold the case together. Is this more in your experience as a criminal defense attorney is this more in line with a PCA you'd expect in a very high-profile case? Um, we previously talked about the Delphi PCA, and I'm just – if you can compare those. Sure. Yeah, so the Delphi PCA, as we talked about before, is really a bare-bone PCA. It only talks about the minimum set of facts that were required to arrest Mr. Allen, and it doesn't talk about what led up to get probable cause for the search of Mr. Allen's residence. You had a prosecutor talk about Mr. Allen's case last week, I believe it was, 
And they stated that just that the fact that Mr. Allen owned a six hour 40 was probably enough to get into his residence. I, I disagree with that. Otherwise, they would have probable cause to get into everybody's residence. I feel that in Delphi, there's a lot more to the case that they're not sharing with the general public. And there were, they had a lot of evidence that pertained to Mr. Allen prior to entry into his home in October. And for tactical reasons, they had decided not to share that. Moving forward to the Moscow, Idaho, Hilberger PCA, that is more in line of what you'd expect to see in a high-profile case. You know, the prosecutor really lays a lot of their case out. And, you know, tactically speaking, it's not a bad idea for them to do that. This is now a public document. You know, there was no fight to keep it private. I think there's maybe one name only redacted out of it. The coroner's uh, name was redacted. And then some people are referred to uh, by initials, the roommate. But other than that, we're, all, we're able to see almost the entire PCA. And it really lays out a case that is going to look a lot like what the government will be presenting, I assume, at trial. I'm sure they have more than this. But the tactical advantage for the prosecutor to, to release this amount of information, for the police to release this amount of information, is it, I think, provides a significant level of confidence in the public that they have the right person here. I mean, they really go through a lot of incriminating evidence against Mr. Koberger. And as I said before, even without the DNA and the trash pull, if that turns out to be a bad search, I think this is enough to establish probable cause for the arrest. And if they have probable cause for the arrest, they have probable cause to extract the DNA from him by a buckle swab or otherwise, and, you know, they can get a CNA in that fashion. What do you make of his repeated visits, apparently, to Moscow, Idaho? Well, I think it's frightening, first of all. This is what FBI profilers would call an organized killer. This is someone who meticulously planned and, I'm sure, thought about and calculated how he was going to commit this crime. Uh, and part of that planning apparently included surveillance of the King Road residence. You know, there's been indication that perhaps one of the uh, victims was, was the target and the other ones were collateral damage. Um, and I'm not sure if, if his surveillance of the King Road address included surveillance of, of that person or of all four people or what, but you know, I, I think chilling and frightening are the first two words that come to mind just thinking about that. And then you also highlighted the visit he made to the area the morning after the crime. Do you really think he might have been looking for that knife sheath? Either that, I mean, there's only two possibilities that I can think of, right? And, and either that or he was going back to see what the reaction to the crime was. I am sure that he realized at some point in time that he left that knife sheath behind. It would be a very risky endeavor to go back into the house and retrieve it. So that's one possibility that he, that he went back to get the sheath, decided it was too risky and left it there. Maybe thinking his DNA wasn't on it. The other possibility that comes to mind would be that he went back to see what the reaction you know, whether or not the police had, had been there uh, and and what was happening at the crime scene. 
either way, uh, it doesn't look good for him. You know, it's, it's highly incriminating. The timing of that visit. Again, he, he turns his phone off, you know, for the two hours that he's committing the murder, but his phone is on all these other times that helped build a, a very strong an incriminating case against him, both going back to the crime scene after and visiting the crime scene uh, no less than 12 times before. Is there anything in here for a defense attorney to potentially exploit or from the perspective of you know, him mounting a defense from here on out? Well, I think Kevin brought it up. I, I think it's going to start with saying that the trash bowl was illegal and that that evidence has to be excluded. I think that the problem with that is that, like I said before, I think they have PC before that. The PC was really generated through cell phone data and video surveillance, you know, ring doorbells, street cameras, and the like. I, I think they have enough with that where if a lawyer were to file a motion to suppress the evidence and, and ask that the DNA from the trash pole be thrown out, I think that there's still probable cause for the arrest. And as I said before, if there's probable cause for the arrest, there's probable cause to seize his DNA. So, you know, one situation that could occur is the judge throws out the DNA from the trash pole, but allows the DNA from a search, a search warrant for his DNA based on probable cause from, uh, you know, citing the same factors as the search warrant affidavit that was just released. I think this is going to be a very tough case for a defense lawyer. I believe Idaho uh, has the death penalty. Are you guys aware of whether or not it does? Not off the top of my head, but uh, yeah, it was reinstated. It was reinstated in 73. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, you have to think the prosecutor is going to go for the death penalty in this case. So, you know, Saving this guy's life is going to be number one, the number one goal for the defense team. And anything on top of that is going to be, you know, really yeoman's work in this case. I'm curious, you know, without getting into where you're from in the Western United States, do you know anything about this area, this kind of border between Washington and Idaho? I have never been either to Pullman or to Moscow, but I'm, I am familiar with that area, but I haven't been to those two particular towns. What's it like? It is rural for the most part. Of course, those are both college towns. Outside of the college area, you know, eastern Washington is very high deserty with, you know, some prairies and rivers. Very pretty. And then as you kind of get towards Idaho, it becomes more foresty and mountainous. Uh, it's just a gorgeous area, uh, very rural. Uh, Pullman and Moscow are, are two of the bigger cities in the area uh, because they are college towns with sizable colleges. But it's it's a beautiful area where it kind of attracts people who are into the outdoors, fishing, whitewater rafting, uh, backpacking, that type of thing. What are the interactions like between a defense attorney like yourself and someone who's charged with a terrible crime? Can you just generally tell us what those first meetings are like and like what the lawyer asks, what he maybe tries not to ask? Yeah, sure. So 
as a defense lawyer, it's important that you give everyone the presumption of innocence. Nobody comes in to my office and says, I committed these horrible crimes. Everybody has a story. Some people's stories make sense. Some people's story doesn't, but you want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt at least. Um, and then as you work your way through the case, I, I would say without necessarily calling people liars, you want to point out, you know, where there's problems in their case or where, you know, things that they say are inconsistent with maybe some of the objective facts in the case. As you're going through the case, you would, you would typically do that. But I try to be non-confrontational and, and I try to, you know, put myself in that person's position and, and say, hey, you know, this person needs help. You know, I am that person's help and I'm going to treat this person with respect and I'm going to give them the same presumption and benefits that our law does, which is presumption of innocence that, you know, if they tell me they didn't do this, which is always the case pretty much, except on maybe a DUI or something like that, I'm going to give them that benefit of the doubt. And if, as the case goes forward, you know, if it looks like it's not going to be a good case for the defense, I'm going to point that out to them. And then in terms of the media attention on this, it's been it's been pretty consistently very high and also uh, national in nature. And as a defense attorney, how does uh, something like that come into play in terms of uh, a strategy for dealing with a case or, or, you know, the way you think about defending a client in, in an atmosphere like that? And I would say, Anya, even, you know, international attention on this particular case. Certainly. Case is, is everywhere. Um, you know, just the circumstances of the case are, are frightening. You know, this is the type of thing that could happen to anyone's kids who are off at college. And I think that's why it's got such, you know, huge public attention. As far as how you would handle that, again, the, the defense lawyers in this case are going to have a really uphill battle. You know, we talked about changing venue in uh, with respect to the Delphi case. Uh, this case, it seems like it's, you know, becoming even more high profile than Delphi. And if you moved it from Moscow to another county, I don't know that you would, you know, find people who knew less about the case or had formed less of opinions. And, and so I think you're going to be stuck with, you know, a jury pool that is going to have a lot of opinions already formed about this case when this case ultimately goes to trial. And that's going to be very difficult to deal with. So, you know, the tactics that you would use would be change of venue. And, and then when you're picking a jury in the, in the voir dire process, you would want to ask a lot of questions about what the people who could be prospective jurors would uh, know about this case and what type of opinions they formed about this case. Again, as I said before, you know, the prosecution has really taken a different tact uh, than the prosecutor in Delphi and really kind of gotten out in front on this case and not asked that any of this stuff be sealed and really kind of laid out a, a very large portion of the case to the general public. Um, I, I think one of the effects, I'm not saying this is why the prosecutor did this, but one of the effects of doing that is going to be that the, the public is going to, at large, is going to you know go into this thinking Mr. Covert is guilty. Yes. And that makes for that makes for a very difficult defense. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of um in this case in particular, maybe even more so than Delphi, a lot of speculation on things like 
the 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 angle of him being a criminology PhD student, the angle of you know an interest in other killers or crimes. So that's definitely a factor in this that we're noticing too. Absolutely, and what I can say is this case is so sort of unique and, and well documented uh, that it's going to be studied by criminologists for years. They weren't able, you know, when you're talking about Ted Bundy or you're talking about, and there's been comparisons to Coburger and Ted Bundy, whether they look alike or, or they act alike. Those comparisons have been made. But we didn't have the ability to look at Ted Bundy's cell phone and see where he was every second of every day, whether or not he was stalking his victims, what he was doing in his off time. We didn't have the ability to go back and look at Ted Bundy's Google searches and see what he was looking at, you know. We, we kind of relied on, you know, more traditional investigative tools, you know, witness interviews and the like to learn information about him. But with Mr. Koberger's situation, there's such, there's going to be such a digital footprint of this guy, and, and a lot of it's already online, you can see it, that this guy is going to be studied by criminologists for years uh, because of the heinousness of the crime and what his behavior was leading up to the crime, whether it be the stalking behavior, whether it be, you know, working as a criminology, you know, teaching assistant at Washington State University. Yeah, this is a, a case that people are going to be talking about for a long time uh, in the criminology world. And I think we're probably going to be talking about it a long time on our program as well. Uh, you mentioned possible suppression motion and a possible change of venue. Are there other things that we should be looking for that might potentially be moves made by a defense attorney in this case? Well, we don't know whether or not he's made statements to law enforcement. That has not been discussed. If there were statements made, uh, there's always a motion to suppress statements made by a defense attorney. There may be some type of challenge to the DNA other than a challenge uh, to the trash poll. The difficulty in, in this case is a lot of the evidence comes from places where Mr. Koberger has no privacy interests, right? And when I'm talking about that, I'm, I'm primarily talking about surveillance cameras. There's no way that Mr. Koberger can say it was illegal for those ring cameras to catch my white Hyundai driving on King Road or Waltana Drive on November 13th at 4.20 a.m., you know, because that's, he doesn't have a privacy interest in that property. When it comes to his cell phone, um, he does have somewhat of a privacy interest in it, but it, it looks like that was all that, that the authorization to obtain his cell phone data was all pursuant to search warrant signed by a judge. And as I mentioned before on a previous show, searches authorized by judges are generally are presumed to be valid. So again, this is going to be a really, really tough case for the defense counsel. Uh, just looking at the search warrant affidavit, you know, I'll say it again that the police just did an outstanding job and, you know, kudos to them. I'm really glad that they have who appears to be the person who committed these homicides in custody. 
Yeah, from the the tenor of the uh, media interviews and things we were watching, it sort of seemed like there was a lot of pessimism about the case getting solved and, uh, you know, that perhaps we'd have another Delphi situation on on our hands where there's something that is very high profile, but not a lot is known about the case itself. And, you know, it, it really seems like this PCA sort of dispels that theory because it seems like there's a lot of evidence pointing at one person and you know the the wheels of justice are in motion at this point yeah and if, if you consider the fact that they hadn't had a homicide in moscow idaho since 2015 i believe is what they said i mean these guys were just on top of it they got the surveillance video right away it, it looks like by late november they had a pretty good idea that coverter was their guy and just built their case from there um, you know, it seems to me that the final thing they wanted was the DNA. But again, I don't think they needed that. I think they had probable cause based on the cell phone data and based on the surveillance cameras. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but I also thought it was interesting that Mr. Koberger changed his license plate. Yeah, why don't you discuss you that? that yeah, so he had uh, Pennsylvania plates on, and there's some discussion in the probable cause affidavit about Pennsylvania being a state that only requires uh, rear license plates. Some states require front and rear. Some states just require rear. Both Washington and Idaho are states that require front and rear plates. And so I think it was harder initially uh, for them to make the license plate on what they refer to as suspect vehicle one in the probable cause affidavit, which is the white Hyundai because there was no front plate on it. Um, Mr. Koberger then, apparently sometime either late November, early December, decides to go into Washington DMV and get Washington plates and then proceeds to drive across the country with front and rear license plates, with Washington license plates on its way up to Pennsylvania. Again, there's, there's two reasons that come to mind that I could think of why Mr. Koberger would have done this. One reason would be that he had to do this because the law requires that when you establish residence in a new state, that you go ahead and register the vehicle in that state. I'm not sure if his license, his, his driver's license was still Pennsylvania or Washington. The other reason, of course, would be the more nefarious one of wanting to change the identity of the vehicle that was associated with the perpetrating of these homicides. Mr. Coburg had to have known that they were looking for the white Hyundai. Yeah, that that's an apt observation. Um, and, you know, given how important the car and vehicular evidence has been in this case, it definitely makes sense that he would, if he's the guilty party, that he would want to pivot at that point. Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you think it's important for our listeners to be thinking about in this case or that you've observed that you thought was interesting? This guy, what I'll say about him is this is someone who thinks he is brilliant and I think when the truth comes out, this is going to be someone who was obsessed with crime. And that obsession led him eventually to commit crime, horrible crimes. But I don't think this guy was that bright. You know, he thought he was covering his tracks, but he basically left a footprint everywhere he went, including all the way across the country to his dad's house where they ultimately were able to seize his DNA. 
One thing that I, I also thought was very interesting that we haven't talked about yet was what Mr. Koberger said when he was arrested, which was, have you arrested anyone else yet or something to that effect, which I thought was kind of bizarre. I don't know what your guys' thoughts were on that, but to me, that's a bizarre thing to say. Again, there's no indication that anyone else was involved in this horrible act. I'm not sure what the thought process in him saying that was. You know what it kind of weirdly reminds me of? Uh, this is I'm going to go into a weird historical mode here. Um, okay. But, so brace yourself. Uh, like when when John Wilkes Booth was plotting to assassinate Abraham Lincoln, he he actually at one point he left a calling card with Andrew Johnson, the vice president. And there's some historians that wonder if he was trying to essentially sow seeds of like indicating that there was a larger conspiracy when there wasn't as part of like a effort to kind of, you know, cloud the water essentially. And, you know, if you are a person who is committing crimes because you're obsessed with crimes and because you want to be, you know, the cleverest boy in the world and get one over on the police, then once you're busted, maybe an opportunity for what you consider to be fun is kind of indicating that there's a larger conspiracy and kind of keep, you know, getting attention in that manner. That's just something that comes to my mind. I've, I have no idea, but it just might be playing games essentially. And it sounds like you and I have the same take on Mr. Koberger's and his thoughts about himself. Yes. Just as an aside, American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln conspiracies by Michael Kaufman gets into Booth's possible motives for contacting vice president, Andrew Johnson. I mean, I said this on our kind of brief analysis today, but, you know, people kind of are, I think, playing into the idea that he's a criminal mastermind a little bit too much because he was captured several weeks after this thing happened. And, um, you know, I mean, being a Ph.D. student is certainly impressive. That's a that's a advanced degree for sure. But that doesn't indicate that you're good at everything and leaving a knife sheath at the scene of the crime just, you know. There's a lot, as you said, there's a lot, you very aptly put it, there's a lot here that indicates that maybe not as smart, he's, maybe he's not as smart as he seems to think. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of Mr. Koberger, unfortunately for him. But uh, I'm very glad that the police were able to solve this crime. Again, I just think this is outstanding police work. Uh, This this is a, a, a police department that doesn't have a lot of homicides to work on, to train on, to get experience in, in solving for this to get dropped in the, the lap. This is obviously the hugest case that's ever come through Moscow, Idaho. And the, the seriousness with which they took it and the, the quickness with which they gathered evidence and put it to use, it was just remarkable, outstanding work by uh, the combined Moscow Police Department, Idaho State Police, and uh, the Washington State University Police officers who are all and I'm sure the FBI as well, who were all working in conjunction to solve this case quickly and get Mr. Koberger off the streets. Excellent work. Let's stop here for a moment to hear from our terrific sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin. 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our attorney expert called us back a few days later, after our initial interview. He had further thoughts he wanted to share, and a few clarifications to make. Uh, So what did you uh, want to add? I had originally said that when... Mr. Koberger went back. He may have gone back to retrieve the knife sheath. You know, I was ripping a lot of that stuff, and I had just looked at that probable cause that day when I had talked to you guys last, and kind of thinking about it some more and thinking about his encounter that he had with roommate DM. I think Mr. Koberger had to have assumed that DM called the police immediately based on his encounter with her. I say that because they they come across each other in the hallway. She has the appearance of being very startled. Mr. Koberger leaves. He apparently wasn't ready to deal with another human being. He leaves the scene quickly and then is seen speeding off. So when he went back at 9 or or 9.15 that next morning, I think he had to have assumed that the police were called when he had gone back. And I say that because, you know, the assumption is going to be that DM calls the police immediately. He's taking off. And I think that's important because I think then that leaves Mr. Koberger, if he is the person who perpetrated the homicide, with only one reason, 
to go back to the scene, you know, four or five hours later, and that is to see what law enforcement's reaction was to the homicide. Of course, there hadn't been any reaction yet. We know now because the police hadn't been called until around noon that day. You also had asked me how to defend Mr. Koberger. And I think defense of Mr. Koberger would would have sort of a two-tiered strategy. First of all, you would want to knock out as much evidence as you could, right? Because there is a lot of incriminating evidence uh, against Mr. Koberger. And, And so when I get a hold of a probable cause affidavit or when I get a hold of a set of police reports, I'm always looking through from a search and seizure standpoint to see if there is evidence that I can eliminate from the state's case. And when I say eliminate, the legal term would be suppress vis-a-vis a motion to suppress. I think the suppression strategy for evidence in the Koberger case would go like this. Well, first of all, there's no, he has no privacy interest in other people's ring cameras and other people's surveillance cameras, whether they be private or uh, municipal cameras or Washington State University cameras. Uh, he has no privacy interest in those. And you cannot suppress evidence that was gained without, uh, unless there was a violation of your privacy interest. So if there's no violation of privacy interest, there's no possibility of suppression. So I, I don't think there's any likelihood, there's, there's really no possibility that any of the surveillance camera footage would be suppressed. And so they have the white Hyundai. They have it linked to Mr. Koberger through the Washington State University vehicle search. And I think they're, they're always going to have that evidence. But I think from there, as a defense attorney, you would want to argue that, that based on that evidence, there was not probable cause to get the search warrant for the tracking information on the cell phone and that ev- and that, that was an illegal search and that everything obtained after that was tainted by that illegal search. And so there were two cell phone searches in this case. Uh, there were two search warrants, uh, at least two search warrants that we know of for Mr. Koberger's cell phone. The first one was for the cell phone tracking information right around the time of the homicide. And then the second one was tracking information from the time Mr. Koberger got that phone, which was July, 2022, up until and after the homicide. And so I would guess that the probable cause from the phone uh, search warrant, from the tracking information search warrant, comes primarily from the Hyundai Elantra video evidence. And again, they're stuck with the video evidence, but the defense attorney would want to argue that there was no probable cause to get either the, fir- the first or the second search warrant uh, to track to obtain tracking information for Mr. Koberger's cell phone. You know, I think that's a tough argument, but as a defense attorney, you would have to make it. And if you were successful and you convinced the judge there was no probable cause to obtain information about Mr. Koberger's phone, I think the case would then look a lot better from a defense standpoint. He would also try to suppress the trash pull and the evidence that was obtained from that. 
I find it odd that when I look again at the affidavit, it looks like Mr. Koberger went out at 4 a.m. one morning and dumped some trash in his neighbor's trash can. But then it, it looks like the trash pull that occurred was from Mr. Koberger's father's residence. I will say that it's, it would be a lot easier. You'd have a much better argument to suppress trash that was pulled from your own residence than if you had dumped it in a neighbor's residence, which would certainly be a true abandonment of the property, leaving one with no privacy interests. But if they could start to suppress the DNA and the cell phone surveillance uh, and the, the cell phone tracking information, that only leaves them with, you know, the witness who sees the bushy-haired or bushy-eyebrowed stranger clad in black, the video of the car, and then unmatched DNA. I will say that this is not a great case for suppression here, uh, but for the defense team, you would just have to try all of these arguments. You know, I've mentioned several times now that search warrants that are authorized, searches that are authorized by warrants that are reviewed by a magistrate before the search takes place, those are much favored over warrantless searches. And it appears, though, all of the searches in this case were pursuant to warrant except for the trash pull, which resulted in the DNA. Also, when you're defending someone in Mr. Koberger's situation where there is strong evidence of guilt, a defense attorney's main job often is to try to find ways to mitigate their client's behavior. So everyone is entitled to a defense in this country. And part of that defense in a case where there is you know, such strong evidence of guilt is necessarily going to involve trying to, uh, you know, as horrific as these crimes were, trying to paint Mr. Koberger in a somewhat favorable light, you know, by showing that he was subject to some type of unfavorable circumstances, perhaps as a child or as a young adult. Oftentimes in my practice, you know, it's certainly not an excuse to commit a crime, but it can be an explanation. But oftentimes in my practice, I'm working with people who have been physically, sexually, mentally abused as children and, you know, had a very difficult childhood, which can in part explain their current situation. Oftentimes, you know, clients who commit crimes are, are suffering mental health challenges, which often um, involve addiction to controlled substances. And so in a case like this, you're going to want to see what was Mr. Koberger's situation? Are there circumstances that could potentially mitigate his situation, whether it was physical, mental, sexual abuse? How can we try to paint this guy in a little bit more of a favorable light than just a cold-blooded killer? You could also do that by trying to develop any positive character references that Mr. Koberger may have, which may be difficult in this case because this guy did kind of seem like a loner and someone who found it awkward or other people found it awkward for him to try to communicate with people in a healthy and pro-social manner. 
when it comes to all of that about character witnesses, establishing possible mitigating factors in terms of the perpetrator's background, um, is all of that especially important in light of the fact that Idaho is a death penalty state? Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I think the first order of business in this case is going to be to try to save Mr. Koberger's life. Try to give the jury, if you know, they do convict him, try to give them a reason not to put Mr. Koberger to death. And so, yeah, I, I think I mentioned before that, you know, number one in this case is going to be saving Mr. Koberger's life, which probably would mean a true life sentence versus the death penalty. Anything that his defense attorneys can do on top of that, I think, is really um, going to be difficult. Well, this is great. Thank you so much for this additional insight. Is there anything else in your notes that you wanted to share with us or that we didn't ask you about? Yeah, a couple of things. I found it interesting or in, in frightening that Mr. Koberger drove back and forth three times in front of the King Road residence and did some type of weird Y-turn before parking off-site and then walking over to commit the murders. You know, you have to, one has to wonder what was going through his mind, whether he was questioning whether or not he was going to really go through with it as he's, you know, casing the place back and forth right before he goes in to commit the murders. There's also evidence that Mr. Koberger was either in front of the residence or near the residence at least 12 times prior to, prior to going over there on November 13th. I have to wonder if on one of those occasions he had gone over there with the plan to commit the murders, but wasn't able to work up the nerve to do so, or if he was, was just there truly casing the place. It, just in kind of going through this case and looking at the police's ability to basically apprehend Mr. Koberger so quickly, even though this was appeared to be, you know, almost a stranger type of murder. I know he was stalking these people, but I'm, I'm sure they were that he was stranger a stranger to them. But the police got this guy quickly, and the way that they did it, which was basically interweaving all of these different technologies, surveillance cameras, cell phones. DNA, you know, what I hope people can take from this crime is that it's easy these days to catch someone who perpetrates a crime like this. Mr. Koberger thought he was some type of criminal mastermind, apparently, but at the end of the day, he left breadcrumbs leading right back to him all over the place. And because we live in such a surveillance society, I think it would be difficult for anyone to commit a crime like this without doing that. And so I hope that when people see this, this discourages other people from thinking they can get away with any crime, particularly one of such a heinous nature. The attorney also had some thoughts on the possibility that Koberger's defense team will try to argue that his phone or car were stolen and used by the real killer. As a defense attorney, 
ethically speaking, you can't fabricate evidence, right? And if you suggested something like that in front of a jury, but there were no evidence to support it, you would not be doing your client a favor. You'd be doing him a disservice by saying, for example, someone stole that cell phone and was, you know, over there looking at the house all of these different times. It wasn't Mr. Koberger. Well, there has to be some type of corroborating evidence to prove that, right? Either a police report that Mr. Koberger's phone was stolen, Mr. Koberger taking the stand and saying that's what happened. And I have to assume in this case, Mr. Koberger is not going to take the stand. I think that's a safe assumption. So, so to come up with these theories without any evidence, I think is, is actually damaging to a defendant's case. And, and on the same note, you can't encourage your client to say things that aren't true, right? So his attorney, whoever ends up, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a team of attorneys for, for Mr. Koberger in this case because of the seriousness of the case. They are going to really be stuck with what Mr. Koberger tells them. And they can't expand the defense based on facts that they wish were present, but are things that are not based in reality. Let's pause this discussion for just a moment to hear from some of our terrific sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Is it fair to say, though, that if they do find opportunities to take him out of the car, take him away from the phone that that would provide more of an opening for them? Absolutely. But again, you can't just suggest something like that happened without some type of corroborating evidence. So where is that evidence going to come from? I mean, I, I, I seriously doubt they're going to be able to come up with a witness who says, oh, I stole the car or stalking girls that, you know, those 12 times. And again, I, I don't see this as a case where Mr. Koberger is going to be testifying. I can almost assure you that he's not going to be testifying in this case. For the folks who might expect, you know, hey, you're accused of this heinous crime. Why don't you get up and defend yourself? Can you speak to the strategic reasons why that is unlikely? 
this is often one of the most important decisions that a criminal defense attorney and a client have to make together in a case, whether or not a defendant is going to testify. My thoughts about that in general is that when a defendant testifies, you put the entire case in the hands of the defendant. And what I mean by that is if the defendant does well on the stand, I think oftentimes you're going to win the case. If the defendant doesn't do well on the stand, then I think you're always going to lose the case. And I think a defendant can not do well on the stand for reasons that are not associated with guilt. Maybe they are a very nervous person. Maybe they don't do well in front of people. Maybe they have strange mannerisms. Maybe they know that the jury won't like them for whatever reason. And oftentimes in a criminal case, when you put your client on the stand, you potentially open up the door to other evidence that wouldn't be there if the client didn't take the stand, uh, character evidence and, and evidence of the like. Also, of course, if Mr. Koberger does take the stand, he's going to be subject to cross-examination by the state's attorney. And I would imagine that the state's attorney is going to have a field day if they're able to ask Mr. Koberger some questions about why he is engaging in some of these particular uh, behaviors, not including the murder, leading up to the murder, the surveillance type behaviors. He's going to have, Mr. Koberger is going to have a very, very difficult time explaining that away. You know, if you were a prosecutor, you're also going to want to spend a lot of time talking to Mr. Koberger about why he was doing things that would be interpreted by law enforcement as an attempt to conceal the commission of the crime. There's evidence that he meticulously cleaned his vehicle, that he was taking steps to conceal his DNA after the commission of the murders, wearing gloves while he's grocery shopping, taking trash to the neighbor's trash bin, these types of things. So if, if, if Mr. Koberger does take the stand, he's going to be subject to some very, very difficult cross-examination. And I think when you look at those things as a whole, you know, I, I have to assume that Mr. Coburg is not going to be testifying in this case. We'd like to thank our expert for his insights. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet.
If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.